If someone were to ask you, what is the most important part of the story of Jesus, what would you say? cross, right? We just sang a, a song that says, just the cross is enough. Just the cross is enough. Just the cross is enough. Pastor Rod reminded us of a song before that, in a song before that, of, of the significance of, of something that happened after the cross too. What's that? Resurrection. The resurrection, right? That, that that is a pretty important part of the story of Jesus. But if you think about a movie, let's just, I don't know, I'll pull one off the top of my head. Top Gun 2, okay? <laughs> if you think about, hey, a pen. If you think about a movie like Top Gun 2, if you were to just parachute in, no pun intended, if you were to just parachute in to the most like climactic scene in Top Gun 2 and you're watching and there's Rooster and there's Maverick and you're going, what's going on? Are, are they going to be okay? And you have no idea what's even happening or why it's happening the way it is and, and, and what's, what's the significance in all of this. And you'd be lost. Like you'd feel the tension You'd know that something bad was happening and something good was trying to overcome the bad, but really you would have no idea why any of it was happening in the first place. And so when we ask that question, what's the most significant part of the story of Jesus? I actually heard somebody say it right as soon as I answered that question or asked that question, and they, their answer was this, all of it. And, and that's, that's, that's right. Because without the full picture of Jesus' life, the cross and the empty tomb are, are really robbed of their full significance. In fact, have you ever wondered, why didn't Jesus, why didn't God, the Father, send the Son just as a fully grown man that just kind of like walked over the mountain one day and was like, hey, I'm here and uh, you can kill me now and then everybody can be forgiven and then I'm going to rise from the dead and, and, and it's all going to be great. Why did God the Father send God the Son as, in, as a baby? Well, it's because the 30 some odd years of his life that he lived before the cross matter to us. Everything that we've been studying in, in Mark's gospel to this point, it all matters to us. Why does it matter to us? Because our problem, which is a three-letter word called sin, it demands that either we pay its full penalty or somebody else who is sinless steps in and pays the penalty for us. But it wasn't enough just for God to send Jesus as God in the flesh and he's there day one and he's completely sinless and then he dies on the cross and we're forgiven and he rises from the dead. No, see, the, the standard is perfection according to the law. And that's what the apostle Paul talks about in Romans when he says, you know what? Jesus did what the law couldn't do. What could the law not do? The law couldn't make us right before God because the law's standard is absolute 100% perfection, perfect obedience to the law. And none of us measure up to that because all of us sin. That's, in fact, the definition of sin. We all fall short of that standard, right? And so you've got that perfect standard that had to be met. And that's why the whole life of Jesus matters. That's why him as a toddler matters. That's why him as a five-year-old, six-year-old, under Mary's instruction, and if Joseph was still around at that time, under Joseph's instruction, that's why that matters. That's why Jesus as an adolescent teenager matters, why Jesus as a 20-year-old matters. And you know, we, we really don't know what that life looked like at the time, aside from the fact that we know from the testimony of Scripture that he was living perfectly obedient to the Father's will, that he was fulfilling all of the law's demands. That's why it matters that we have the three years of Jesus' earthly ministry that we've been studying in the Gospel of Mark before we get to this place. See, if we were to just parachute into the cross, 
It'd be like turning on Top Gun 2 at the most climactic point of the story and having no idea why you're, you're seeing all this unfold before you. You'd be lost. We need the full picture. We've gotten that full picture over the last four weeks, and now we're going to come to that climactic point in Mark's gospel. And, and there have been a lot of different characters as we've kind of watched all of this happen, as Jesus came on the scene. Remember, we had John the Baptist for a little bit there, and then we had him calling the disciples for a little while there, and then we had him interacting with the, the crowds and the, the masses and feeding the 5,000, and then we had the woman with the flow of blood, and then we had Jairus and his daughter, <clears throat> and then we had the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the Sanhedrin, and they, they got into the mix there. And There's been a lot of characters going on so far in the story of Jesus' life, but tonight... Jesus takes center stage. Tonight, the focus is solely on Christ and what happens in what he does in chapters 14 through 16 of Mark's gospel. Take your Bibles and open them up to there if you're not already there. Last week, if you remember, we saw Jesus come in to Jerusalem, the triumphal entry, marking the beginning of the final week of his life before the cross. And we wrapped up our time last week with him leaving the, the temple mount with his disciples and pointing to the, the temple as they were. And they were saying, look how amazing these buildings are. And Jesus was saying, look, the, those buildings are going to be destroyed. And not only that, but there's going to be wars and, and, and rumors of wars and famine. And there's going to be all of these terrible things. And you know what? Nobody knows when that's going to happen, not even the sun. But, but you know what you need to be doing? You need to be busy about the, the mission that you have, which is to go with the gospel to the ends of the earth. Well, meanwhile... We pick back up in chapter 14, and we find out what the religious leaders are doing now with Jesus. It says this. It says, it was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's Wednesday during the Passion Week, okay? So Wednesday, middle of the week. It's two days before the Passover feast. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. So the decision's been made from a human perspective. The opponents, the enemies of Jesus have said, that, that's it, it's, it's over, we're going to kill him. We just need to figure out how we're going to do this. And the, the significance of the Passover is a, a twofold there. Number one, the, the Passover lamb was about to be slaughtered, right? The sacrifice that remembers and commemorates the, the exodus from Egypt. When Israel was delivered from slavery in Egypt and God commanded them to take a, a lamb, a year old without blemish, and to slaughter that lamb, to spill its blood, and to take some of the blood of the lamb and to smear it on the, the doorposts and the lintel of, its, of their homes. So that when the angel of death came in there to afflict the final plague, the death of the firstborn, it would see that blood had already been shed for that house and it would pass over that house. God then instituted that as a commemorative feast that Israel was to, was to remember and practice and observe throughout all of their generations. We fast forward all the way now to the life of Christ and he in his final week is approaching the cross during the Passover. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world is what John the Baptist called Jesus. And he is walking towards, moving towards the cross at the time when all of the Israelites were thinking about the blood that needed to be shed so that they could escape death. And so that's one reason why it's significant. But for the Jews, the religious leaders of the Jews at this point in time, they weren't thinking that. You know why this was significant for them? It's this. Every Jewish male 15 years and older was required to be on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem during the Passover feast. That meant that this place was packed. Some estimates, 50,000. One historian, Josephus, puts the number at 3 million. I think that's an overblown estimate there, right? But somewhere between 50,000 and 3 million. Okay, we're going we're gonna to play with those numbers. 
but even 50,000. When's the last time you went to a stadium that was packed, that was sold out with 50,000 people in it? Picture that in a much smaller space, like kind of the size of a football field. All the fans from the stadium come down and gather on the football field. That's a little bit of what the Temple Mount would have felt like during this time. And they're thinking, man, if we go in and we try to arrest Jesus publicly on the Temple Mount because they know he's going to come back and teach because he's been coming back and teaching every day so far, right? And they think, man, if if we wait for him to come back and we try to arrest him on the Temple Mount, there's going to be a riot. Why? Because Jesus, remember I've been saying this throughout our study, Jesus was famous. People wanted to be around Jesus. He was healing people. He was teaching, as Mark said at the very beginning. People were noticing, man, Jesus is teaching us, but not like the scribes and, and, and rabbis. He's teaching us somebody who has authority. And he's casting out demons, and he's just doing things. People like Jesus, by and large. And so the Jewish leaders here, they're thinking, man, we can't arrest him on the Temple Mount because if we do, there's going to be a riot. And so they think, we need to do this by stealth. Well, the scene now shifts as Mark is relating this to us. And remember, Peter is the one that's telling Mark these events. So Mark shifts the scene for us away from these Jewish leaders plotting to kill Jesus by stealth. And he goes now to this scene of an anointing of Jesus. Mark does something that I haven't really pointed it out too much in the gospel, but it it comes to bear in our our passage tonight a a couple of times. It's called a Markin sandwich. And you're like, that sounds yummy. Um, But a Markin sandwich is this. He'll take two similar events and he'll bracket another event to emphasize the difference between the, those three situations there, right? So we just had the, the Jews plotting to arrest Jesus. We're going to see Judas go to the Jews and agree to betray Jesus. And in between that, we've got this act of devotion that was significant and sacrificial. And that's where we pick up in Mark chapter 14, verse 3 through 9. While Jesus was there in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, we don't know who Simon was, but most likely somebody that Jesus healed during his ministry. Perhaps this is why Jesus is at his house, because Simon wanted to honor him. But Jesus is staying there. He's, he's reclining there. He's eating there. And while he's there, in walks this woman, and it says that she had an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard. You guys may remember, Pastor Mike spoke on this, I think last year at the, the Good Friday service, and gave out the vials of, of nard that smells like old ladies' perfume. You guys remember that? Yeah, yeah. Um, that was significant because that was in, imported from, from India. So super expensive stuff, upwards of, of a year's worth of wages. Okay. Not to account for inflation and everything else like that, but let's just take the number $50,000, okay? That's, most of you in this room would love to make $50,000 for a year right now. That's not equivalent to a year's worth of wages for a family to live here, but let's just use that number $50,000. Imagine taking a, a jar of perfume that costs $50,000 and walking into somebody's living room as they're seated around a coffee table and taking the jar and opening it up, and what she does here, she pours it on the head of Jesus. It's a little less strange during this time because it was not uncommon to anoint the head of the honored guest at a feast. And so as Jesus is there, she's doing something for him to show that he is an honored and revered guest. It's possible this is Mary, the the sister of Lazarus. Uh, There's a similar account in John chapter 12. John says that she anointed his feet with it and wiped his feet with her hair don't panic about that and say, was it head or or feet? It's it's possible that it was both. And that John chose to emphasize that and Peter's remembering her anointing his head. But anyway, she does this and and she gets rebuked by the disciples because of what they perceive as waste. They're saying, man, this, this jar was expensive and you could have sold it 
for more than 300 denarii, again, more than a year's worth of, of wages, and given it to the poor, and it says they scolded her. John is more specific and tells us that this was Judas who is scolding her for doing this. Significant for us, isn't it? Judas is about to go and betray Jesus, scolding Mary for showing this act of devotion and worship to Jesus. Probably because Judas was the, the, the treasurer of the group and could have taken some of the money for himself in this process as well. But again, this devotion, the Jews want to kill Jesus. Mary is worshiping Jesus with a costly demonstration of her love for him by anointing his head with this perfume. And Jesus makes this statement and says, look, she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial, verse 8. Jesus knows what awaits him. We've already seen three times last time he said, look, I'm going to the cross. I'm going to the cross. I'm going to the cross. He knows what's coming. He says, look, what she's done, she's done what she could. She's anointed my body beforehand for burial. And then he says this, he says, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. It's cool to think that Peter was there listening to that. And as Mark is recording this gospel, Peter's hearing those words probably echo through his mind as he's recounting this and remembering this in his head saying, we need to include this because Jesus said, wherever the gospel is proclaimed, hey, this story is going to be told. The devotion. Scene shifts. Now we're back with the, the bad guys again. Dun, dun, dun. And Judas is there. And Judas goes to the religious leaders now, and he goes to them, and he says, look, I want to, to, to help you out here. Why? We don't know exactly what triggered, Jesus, what triggered Judas to go do this. We, we just don't. It doesn't say, other than this was part of God's foreordained plan for what was going to unfold. Judas goes to the religious leader, says, I'm, going to, I'm, I'm willing to betray him. What will you do for me? We know that they, from other accounts, offer to pay him 30 pieces of silver. He agrees to betray him. And then they start to plot and plan when that will take place. The vitriol, the hatred of the Jews, the devotion of the woman, the, the betrayal of Judas there. Well, after this, Jesus tells his disciples to go and prepare the last supper, the Passover meal. It was gathering to that time. The disciples wouldn't have thought that this was strange for this meal to be prepared because the Passover was approaching and it was natural to have this meal together during this time. And so he tells them to go and they'll find this room prepared. It seems that Jesus had agreed beforehand with somebody that, that they were going to hold the meal there because they find the room. The room is already furnished. The meal is already there. Everything's ready to go. And so they, they go and they begin to have this meal. And the meal itself is not communion. The meal itself is not la the last supper. The meal itself is the Passover meal. Okay, this is a meal that Jews all over Jerusalem on this night would have been enjoying together, having together. And yet Jesus seizes upon this meal to institute the last supper. But before he gets there, while they're gathered there together and they're having the Passover, as they're reclining at the table and eating, verse 18, Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Jesus, again, knows what's awaiting him. And I just, that's what I want to emphasize right now with you. Jesus is aware. He sees what's happening. He, Judas is not doing this under the cover of night without anybody knowing what's going on. Jesus knows. He makes this statement and it, it, it rattles the, the rest of the 11 who are there. And they all are there going, who is it? Who, who's going to do it? Surely it's not me. And in fact, the other gospels record that even Judas said to, to cover his bases there and to make sure that he wasn't exposed. Surely it's not me, is it, Rabbi? But Jesus is, is telling them what's coming, what's going to happen. 
in this meal, he then turns to the institution of the Lord's Supper in that next section in verse 22. As they were eating, he took bread, blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup, which would have been later in the Passover meal. It would have been the the third cup of the Passover meal. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. For a covenant to be ratified, there had to be the shedding of blood. Jesus is about to go to the cross and give his life and shed his blood for us so that we would enjoy the blessings of the new covenant, that we would be forgiven, that we would experience the grace and mercy of God that would be poured out for us through the forgiveness of our sins. But for that covenant to be enacted, for that covenant to be ratified, there had to be blood shed. Jesus was holding the cup, passing it around. And look, this is not the literal blood in the cup, but this represents the blood. And so they drink the cup, and Jesus makes the statement, and he says, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Here Jesus is acknowledging that he knows what's coming, not only the death that's coming, but also the resurrection that's coming. From here, Jesus begins to uh, move with his, his disciples to the, the, the Garden of Gethsemane together. And as they go out, as they're singing a hymn, as they're going to the Mount of Olives, which is where Gethsemane was, Jesus says to them, you will all fall away, verse 27, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Again, Jesus is telling them, this is what is coming. Jesus knows what's coming. This is not a surprise to him. He's walking towards it resolutely, willingly, moving towards the cross. Peter said to him, even though all fall away, I will not. Here's prideful Peter standing up and saying, look, I'm I'm not going anywhere, Lord. I will never forsake you. Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. I don't blame Peter for this because I think if we were there, right, even as Mark records there, they all said the same because they had no idea what was coming. They had no idea what was coming, but Jesus did. And and did you catch that? I I tried to bring that out as we're walking through this, this portion of Mark 14 to this point. Jesus is not blind to what awaits him. Jesus is not going... I, I, okay, I, I have a, a concept that something bad is going to happen, but I don't know. No, instead, what is Jesus doing? He's orchestrating the events even. He's foretelling what awaits. He's moving towards the cross with a, with a, a resoluteness about him. He's not panicking. He's not looking over his shoulder. He's not running away to Capernaum. He's staying right there knowing that very night what's going to happen. Jesus leaves the upper room leaves the Last Supper to walk across the Kidron Valley over to the Mount of Olives into the Garden of Gethsemane knowing that that is where Judas is going to meet him and betray him. And the significance for that, for us, is is this. Jesus did that for you and for me willingly. Willingly. And that's our first point tonight is this. Realize Jesus went willingly. That Jesus went straight to the cross Not as a passive victim, but as an active participant. Knowing what was waiting. Walking in perfect obedience to the will of the Father through it all. Sitting in the upper room with Judas right there with him. 
knowing what Judas was about to go do. And Jesus went willingly. I love the way that, that Luke put it when he put it this way. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He set his face. That resolve, he would not be swayed. He was going to where the Father was leading him. I remember the, the first time I took my two oldest on the Tower of Terror, when it used to be called that at Disneyland. Avengers Tower, whatever it is now. They were terrified. The, the name was, was an app name. It was an appropriate name for them on that, that ride. And the worst part for them was waiting in line because they had no idea what was in front of them. And, and they were looking for every out that they possibly could. They're like, Dad, I don't, I don't know. I don't think. Maybe, maybe we don't need to ride this. I don't know. The line's taking a long time. Maybe it's broken. Maybe we should leave. I don't think we should really be here anymore. I want to grow up. I don't want to die on a ride at Disneyland. They were frightened, right? Because what? Because they didn't really know what awaited them. And, and, and there was a, a fear about that, okay? We don't see that in Jesus. We don't see Jesus fearful. We don't see Jesus cowering. We don't see Jesus trembling. We don't see Jesus hiding behind the 12, afraid of what's about to take place. We see Jesus resolved and resolute, continuing on the path the Father had laid before him, entrusting, as it were, himself to his Father the entire way towards the cross. You see why this is significant, y'all? Some people will look at Christianity and say, well, Christianity promotes a divine form of child abuse. That, that this idea of the cross is a form of the, the Father abusing the Son, but the problem with that is that would suggest that Jesus didn't go willingly and willfully to the cross. The problem with that is that that, that would suggest that, that Jesus was a, a passive victim, not an active participant in the unfolding of the plan of the, the Father's will. And as we read these chapters and these events in Mark, I think you can see for yourself that that's just not the case. Jesus knows what's coming. In fact, for, for a long time, he's been telling the disciples, this is what's coming. He knows what's about to happen, and he's not kicking and screaming on the way to the cross. He's going with resolve, following the Father's will. The theme of Mark that we've been talking about, Jesus as the suffering servant of God. Here's Mark again showing us Jesus as that example for us to follow as he walked straight towards the, the greatest trial that anyone on earth could ever experience, satisfying the full wrath of God against our sin. None of you have suffered like that. And Jesus goes resolutely entrusting himself to the Father the whole way. As we walk through a trial, and some of you walk through trials very, very dark, very, very painful, you can follow your Savior through that valley. He's walked it for you. He's gone before you. See, here's what's so cool about all this. You ready? Hebrews 12, 2. It's a verse that you probably know. And if you were with us through our study of Hebrews, we, we, we covered this. We didn't skip it. We, we, we preached on it. Hebrews 12, 2. Looking to Jesus. We think about the first one, right? We need to run with endurance the race that's set before us, right? We focus on that, and, and rightfully so. We do need to be running. But I want to focus on Jesus here for a second. Because the author says, while we run, here's what we do. We look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of, of our faith, who, notice the language, for the joy that was set before him. Have you ever paid attention to that phrase? For the joy that was set before him. Endured 
the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Have you ever asked, what's the joy that was set before Jesus? Do you guys realize that part of the joy set before Jesus was you? Was your salvation, your deliverance, that allowed him to set his face willfully towards the cross, that allowed him to sit there and endure such hypocrisy from Judas in the upper room that Judas would say, surely it's not me that's going to betray you, Lord. When Jesus in that moment could have called down all the legions from heaven, all of the angels from heaven to just obliterate Judas on the spot. Why didn't he? Because he had a joy that was set before him. Isaiah the prophet put it this way. He said this. He said, out of the anguish of his soul, notice this next phrase, he shall see and be satisfied. What was going to satisfy Jesus in the anguish of his soul that we're about to see so vividly in Gethsemane and at the cross? What would satisfy Jesus? By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Part of what would satisfy Jesus' soul in the midst of the anguish was knowing what he was accomplishing through it. That's what was driving him. That was the joy that was set before him was that he knew that it meant salvation for you and for me. Not trying to make the cross about us. But I also want to preach faithfully to what the scriptures say. And and look, part of the reason why he went willfully was to accomplish the Father's plan because he loves you. And he had you in mind, your salvation in mind through paying the penalty that was required. Part of what drove Jesus on the way to his cross was knowing that his suffering would mean our salvation. Have you ever had someone volunteer to do something for you that you just didn't want to do? You, you were kind of bemoaning it, complaining about it, going, I just, I just don't want to do this. And then somebody says, okay, listen, I'll do it for you. You, you don't have to do it. What's your normal response after that? No, 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 it's okay. I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll, I'll do it. And you're hoping that their response is going to be, no, it, really, seriously, it's okay. I got it. I'll take care of it for you. And they step in and they do that thing for you, right? And it's not that for them it's any more enjoyable than it would have been for you. Why are they doing it for you? Because they love you. Because they want to serve you. Because they care about you, Right? There's been no greater example of that than the cross. And it's not that, that I'm trying to compare Jesus to washing dishes or the cross to washing dishes. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that, but I'm, what I'm saying is this. It wasn't that we didn't want to do what, what had to be done. It's that we couldn't do what had to be done. And Jesus came in and said, I'll do that for you. Willingly. Willingly. Think about in, in Mark's gospel, Mark's giving us this, this broad picture, this fast-paced picture of all this stuff going on. John like slows things way down a lot more during this section. In John 13 through 17, you've got the upper room, right? You remember the upper room where we just, like we saw that they were eating together and that the, the meal was instituted and Jesus said that Judas was going to betray him and then they left. That's Mark's snapshot of it. John is, is the one that gives us the picture. You remember when Jesus got to the upper room? You remember what, what he did there? He looked around and he, he took off his outer garments and, and he girded himself up and he washed the, the disciples' feet. Remember that? And, and he got to Peter 
It's interesting. This is Peter's account, and Peter left that part out there. But he got to Peter, and Peter's like, no, uh-uh. And Jesus says, look, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part of me. And Jesus, Peter says, wash all of me. But this humbling act, this humiliating act for Jesus, and then he says at the end of it, he says, look, I tell you the truth, a new commandment I give to you, that you should love one another as I have loved you. The disciples kind of got that at that point, but imagine what they were thinking about that on the back end of this, after the cross. Thinking, wow, Jesus did all that for us. Jesus loved us to that extent. How much more impactful would this be in the eyes of the disciples looking back at it than it was maybe as it was unfolding in real time? We should feel the same impact because Christ was walking towards the cross for us too. Though he went with eyes wide open, which he did, he went willingly. It doesn't mean that this was not going to involve immeasurable pain and agony along the way. And that's where we shift in the next section here in Mark's gospel. In verse 32 through 42, Jesus finds himself in Gethsemane. You may be able to make out on the picture behind me, the word above this doorway here says Gethsemane. And this is a a door that's in Israel on the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane that is the entrance into a cave. And when you go into the cave, there's actually no photography allowed in the cave. Otherwise, I would put some photos up of that. But when you go into the cave, this was a a place that held a a first century olive press. So the olives in the the Garden of Gethsemane, because remember, it was an olive garden there. They would be gathered and they would be brought into this cave there on the mountainside. And that's where the olives would be pressed and the oil would be made. Well, this was the spot where Jesus would often go with his disciples to spend the evening and spend the night together. So as they go back out, they go here to this cave. And you say, well, how do you know that? Where does that say that in the Bible? Let me ask you a question real quick, because this is super helpful. If you ever get to Israel, which you should, if you ever have the chance to go, go to Israel. But if, if, if you were one of the original followers of Jesus and, and Jesus dies on the cross and then he rises from the dead and ascends to heaven and, and commissions you to go and, and, and tell other people about him, you think you're going to remember a, a significant place like this that you're going to tell other people about and they're going to tell other people about and they're going to tell other, other people and other people and other people and other people about? Yeah. So a lot of, of what we have are traditional sites where we can't say, thus says the Lord, But we've got a a pretty firm foundation that that's what was going on here. Because what happens when they get to Gethsemane, it says they went to a place called Gethsemane and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. Jesus leaves them here and goes about a stone's throw away or so over to begin to, to pray to his father. And as he prays to his father, the things that he prays to his father are worth noticing. But first, I want you to notice here the emotion of Jesus. He said in verse 33, he took with him Peter and James and John and he began to be, notice what it says, greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. And he goes a little bit further away from those three and he says, watch here and pray for me. And he goes a little bit further and he kneels down and and ignore the, the bald man in the foreground of the picture. But what that stone is in front of him is a stone that now is, there's a church built on top of it because the Catholics went to Israel and were like, we're going to build a church on everything. And so that's what they did. So this is a stone that's there that was, again, traditional site. But again, this is such a significant event. You think the disciples are going to remember this and pass this on. That's supposedly the very place that Jesus was praying this prayer before the Father. 
in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he kneels down and he prays. And what does he pray? He says, Abba. That's the most intimate address for a father in the Greek language, in the Aramaic language. You can't have a more intimate address than that. Abba, Father. What does he pray? He says, remove this cup from me. This is where we see more clearly than anywhere else, I think, the true humanity of Jesus. As he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's staring at the cross in front of him. And yes, he's going willingly, but y'all, that doesn't mean that he was going just on cruise control thinking it was no big deal. He understood better than anyone else what awaited him on the cross. And it had far more to do than the nails in his hands and the pain that he was going to experience while suffocating to death on the cross. It had far more to do with the, the full wrath of the Father that was going to be poured out upon him. And so he's here in Gethsemane and he's greatly distressed and he's troubled and he's sorrowful even to the point of death. He is in agony here and he's praying, remove this cup from me. There's the humanity of Jesus dreading the cross, not in a cowardice fearfulness because he's, he's resolute towards it, but in just a realization and an honesty in his flesh of saying, I don't want to experience your wrath, Father. But then he says, but not what I will, but what you will. There we see that the two wills of Jesus, the, the human will and the divine will, which honestly, y'all, are never at odds with each other because Jesus always submits that human will in perfect obedience to the will of the Father. And so in his humanity, he says, let this cup pass from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. How many times does he pray that? Have you noticed that before? How many times does it say in the text that he prayed that? Look at verse 41. What does it say? He came the third time. He said to them, are you still sleeping? It's enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Three times, three times he's pleading and praying that the Father would remove the cup from him. And yet he trusts the Father. Remember whose gospel this is? This is Peter's gospel through Mark. Peter would write this. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten But what did he do? He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. After this comes the betrayal and the arrest. Judas comes to do what he had agreed to do. And at this point in time, one commentator pointed out that Jesus is officially turned over into the hands of his enemies. He is now in human hands at this point, so to speak. And we're going to see from this point forward, Jesus is going to be led and he's going to be shackled and he's going to be held and he's going to be mocked and he's going to be paraded and he's going to be abused and he's going to be tortured and he's going to be crucified. But it's all going to be according to the perfect plan of the Father. A plan that he is willingly, not a passive victim in, but an active participant in. In fact, Peter would preach this later in Acts chapter 2. When he would say this, he would say, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Who killed Jesus? God or the Romans, God or the Jews? Yes. 
it was the Jews and the Roman soldiers working in perfect concert with the plan of the Father. And Jesus is perfectly submitting himself to the plan of the Father. And so he is arrested there on the mount. They lay hands on him, verse 46, and they seize him. Mark, in this section, I think I, I was struck this week studying this by just the simplicity of what he says and yet how enormous these statements really are. They seized him, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God. They seized him. But one of those who stood by, again, Peter, we know that from other Gospels, drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out to me as a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. Remember when Jesus said, all of you will scatter when the shepherd is struck. They all left him and fled. We get that weird statement in verses 51 and 52 about this young man who followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Who is that? A lot of people think this is Mark writing himself into the gospel. Not that he wasn't there, but recording what was happening in his own life. They arrest Jesus and they lead him away and they bring him before the Sanhedrin to Caiaphas' house in Israel, in Jerusalem there. And this is the preliminary hearing and it happened in a rushed manner because typically this, this would have not happened at night. In fact, later on, it's going to be prohibited for things like this to be happening and taking place at night. But the Jews are, they know the Passover is coming. They know the Sabbath is coming. They want to get this done as fast as they can. So they bring him immediately to Caiaphas' house and they have this hearing. And notice in the text, it says they're looking for false witnesses to to bear witness against him so they can charge him and, and consign him to death because they know that ultimately he hasn't done anything yet deserving of death. But notice that it says in in verse 56, many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. They can't even lie right at this point, right? In in fact, even some stand up and and try to agree together. They say, well, we heard him say, I'm going to destroy this temple that's made with hands. And in three days, I'll build another not made with hands. But they can't agree on that either because Jesus never said that. What Jesus said, we find in John 2.19, where it says, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. But they, they couldn't say that he was referring specifically to the temple because he wasn't. He was referring to his, his own body in that. So they're trying to get that. Well, finally, notice it says this. The high priest, this is Caiaphas, asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? That's in verse 61. And here's Jesus. He said, I am. And then he said this, and you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of the power coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus is going back to Daniel 7, and he is claiming to be the fulfillment of Daniel 7. He is going back with that initial statement even there, I am, and calling to mind the covenant name of God. And so the high priest at this point, it says there, tears his garments and says, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. This is God. This is the second member of the Trinity. This is Jesus. This is the one that Paul says in Colossians 1.15 that in, he was the exact representation of God. In, in Colossians 1 there he says, in him all things hold together. 
and they're spitting on him. And they're covering his face and they're, they're hitting him. And they're mocking him. That night, Jesus spent the night in a place like this. In fact, this is in Caiaphas' house there in Jerusalem. And you probably can't make it out, but the thing up on the wall there, that the little rope-looking thing, those, those were anchors. Those are anchors that are still there in the wall that would have dated back to this time. And those are places where the prisoners that were tried would have been tied up awaiting their trial. This is called the sacred pit. This is in Caiaphas' house. This is looking down into it because this is the pit in which Jesus was kept overnight from Thursday night into Friday night, Friday morning. Jesus spent the night here. In fact, you can go down into that, and this is looking back up as we went down. That was the, the opening, the hole through which they would have lowered him down. Meanwhile, what's going on with Peter? Again, here's another Mark and Sandwich. You've got the boldness of Jesus standing before his accuser saying, yes, I am the Christ. Flash to Peter in between. Peter was below in the courtyard. One of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed once. And the servant girl saw him and, and began to say to the bystanders, no, no, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you're one of them. You are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster, rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Probably still tears in his eyes recounting that to Mark as Mark is recording this. Peter's denying Jesus. Then it scene flashes back to Jesus in, in chapter 15. Jesus is now before Pilate. They've agreed now. They've taken him out of the pit. Now they've sent him to Pilate, which would have been located there, right next to the, the Temple Mount in that area. And, and now he's standing trial before the Romans. And, and the charge now is he's said that he's the king because that's going to get the Romans upset because they're worried about insurrection. And so Pilate's interviewing him and look in verse two, it says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answers him, you have said so, which would have been to confirm what the charge was. Yes. And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate asked him again, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. At the feast of the Passover, Pilate used to do a favor for the Jews. He would release a prisoner for them. So Pilate really is still trying to help Jesus out here because he can't imagine why this man is guilty of, of a, a, a penalty re requiring death, of a sin requiring death. And so he goes to the crowd and he says, surely this will, will get them to release Jesus and come to their senses. He says, look, do you want to have Barabbas? A man who had, look at verse 7, committed murder in the insurrection. This is a murderer and a political insurrectionist. This is not somebody you want walking around the streets. He says, do you want me to release Barabbas for you or Jesus? And the crowd came up to, to Pilate to ask him to do as they usually did for him. And he answered them saying, do you, which do you want the, to release for you, the king of the Jews or Barabbas? For he perceived it was out of envy that the priest had delivered him up. Pilate at this point is thinking, there's no way they're going to choose Barabbas. 
But so much is their hatred for Jesus, and so firm is the divine plan of God unfolding here that the crowds say, we want Barabbas. And Pilate says, well, then what should I do with Jesus? Look at verse 13. Again, the simplicity of Mark, but the massive significance of the statement. And they shouted, crucify him. Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? You realize that this is a godless man testifying to the innocence of Jesus here. What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released Barabbas and having scourged Jesus, whipped him, flayed his back open. He delivered him to be crucified. He delivered him to be crucified. Again, the simplicity of that and yet the massive significance there. Now verses 16 through 20, Jesus is in the hands of these godless soldiers. And they lead him away inside the palace that is the governor's headquarters. And they call together the whole battalion. Hey, come be entertained. Look who we've got. And, and in a divine twist of irony, they, they put a royal robe on him, a purple cloak, and they twist together a crown, and they, the, the crown of thorns, and they shove it on his head, and they begin to mock him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. He is the king of the universe being mocked by these godless Roman soldiers. Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed, hitting the crown so that it was driven more into his, into his, his, his head, into his, his skin and his scalp and the blood coming out, spitting on him, kneeling down in fake homage to him. And again, the simplicity, but the significance in verse 20. When they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes back on him, and they led him out to crucify him. They led the Lord of creation out to crucify him. Verse 21 through 32, Jesus is crucified. His physical state is such that he cannot bear the load of the cross all the way to Golgotha. And so they compel a man named Simon of Cyrene to come out of the crowd and take the cross and carry it for Jesus. And I want you to notice something here because they, they get to the place where he's going to be crucified, Golgotha, and they offered him this drink, wine mixed with myrrh. And what this was is it was an act of mercy on the, the, the part of the crowds gathered there towards the criminals that were going to be crucified because this concoction of wine and myrrh would, would have served as a, 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 a soft anesthetic that would have dulled the pain of what they're about to endure. And so they offer it to Jesus, but I want you to see what Jesus does. Jesus does not take it. Why? Because he knows that part of the point of the cross is to experience the pain that all of us should have experienced for our sin painted the wrath of God. He wants to be in his right mind and he understands that absorbing the wrath involves the fullness of the cross. Look at verse 24. And they crucified him. Containing those words is Jesus being stretched out horizontally on the ground on the vertical beam that would have been laid down at that point. And his hands through the wrist nailed to the horizontal crossbar. And then what would have happened after his feet were fixed with a nail through his feet, what would have happened is that cross would have been lifted up with ropes. And as it comes up, there's a hole that would have been right underneath the, the post waiting for the vertical post where it rests. 
And as Jesus is on the cross and he's being lifted up and that pole gets closer and closer to the edge of that hole, it finally moves past the point of no return and it slams down into the hole and jolts the entirety of Jesus' weight on his wrists and his feet, which are bleeding, and his back, which is flayed open, scraping against the splintered wood behind him. And that's just the beginning of the suffering. And Mark says, and they crucified him. And they divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide which they should take. Psalm 22 talks about that as a a prophetic statement. This is the fulfillment of it. It was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read the king of the Jews. And there they crucified with him two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, and yet he can't save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we might see and believe. You see and understand the, the, the massive amount of irony in that statement, right? Because if he had come down for the cross, there's nothing to believe in. If he comes down from the cross, as, as Paul would say about the resurrection later, but look, your faith is futile because you're still in your sins, because the payment's not made. And yet they just don't see the significance here of what's happening with Jesus on the cross. And Jesus cries out in the next section, the death of Jesus. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land. And Jesus cries out. Jesus said seven things on the cross. Mark records one because remember who Jesus is in Mark's gospel. He's the suffering servant of Yahweh, the suffering servant of God. And Jesus is dying on the cross. And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's again a fulfillment of of Psalm 22. As that same statement is made there in Psalm 22. And that was an anticipation of what Jesus would endure on the cross. And so many people have wondered, what did he mean by that? And here's what I think he meant. I think back in the garden when he was praying in Mark 14, 36, Father, let this cup pass from me. I think when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the moment Jesus knew the fullness of that cup. Well, what does that mean? Did the father turn his face away as we sing in the song? Should we sing that? Should we not? Look, I don't know the divine equation that goes into what it means that the father forsook the son, but I know that the full wrath of God was laid upon him for my sin and your sin. In this moment, as Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then again, the simplicity And the significance, look at verse 37. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. The Son of God, dead. There's no way to fully wrap your mind around that. Notice what happens. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That would have been the curtain separating the Holy of Holies from everything else. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. And there were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and Joseph and, and Salome, And when he was in Galilee, they they followed him and ministered to him. And and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. But notice the disciples aren't there. John was there. We learned from John's gospel. But the others are gone. 
And it says, And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, that is the Sanhedrin, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage. And this was a courageous thing that he did. And he went to Pilate, and he asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate is surprised that he should already be dead. But Pilate doesn't really care. Again, Pilate thinks he just killed an innocent guy to, to, to begin with. So Pilate agrees and grants the body to Joseph. Joseph brought a linen shroud, taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out from the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. Again, the simple fact that Jesus willingly walked to the cross does not negate the immeasurable amount of pain and suffering and torment and torture that was involved in his death. And yet Jesus endured it all the way, even to the point of denying this anesthetic concoction that was offered to him that would have lessened the physical torment of the cross. Why? Why? Why did he stay on the cross when the crowds were saying, come down from the cross? Why did he stay on the cross when people were saying, you who saved others, you can't save yourself? Why did he stay on the cross when people were saying, this guy said he could destroy the temple in three days? Are you kidding me? Why did he stop? Why did he not stop these men that were beating him mercilessly? Why did he not stop the man who had the whip that was flaying his back open? Why did he not stop the, the, the man who shoved the crown of thorns on his head? Why did he not look at Pilate and say, who do you think you are? Why did he just do this? All? Why did he just go forward with it all? What was it about it? Yes, it was all part of the Father's plan. But I also want you to understand there was some other reason why Jesus did what he did. And that's our second point tonight. We need to understand that. And I'm about to tell you why. But understand why Jesus died like he did. Because he did not, he did not have to. Jesus was not a passive victim, but an active participant in the unfolding plan of God throughout all of this. Why? We have to ask the question, why? John put it this way, by this we know love. That he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. In other words, John is saying, you want to know the definition of love? Look at the cross. By this we know love. Love. That's why. 1 John 4, 19. We love, why? Why do we love? Because he first loved us. Could Jesus have gotten down from the cross? Yes. Could Jesus have called legions of angels at his imminent disposal to come down and obliterate everybody and just take his disciples and say, all right, well, here we go. Let's go feed some more people if there's anybody left. Yes, he could have done that. Why didn't he do it? Was it out of obedience to the Father's will? Yes. Was it submitting himself to the divinely orchestrated plan whereby this took place according to the definite foreknowledge of God? as Peter would would preach in Acts chapter 2? Yes. But it's more than that. It's love. Jesus suffered like he did because he loves you. He died for you. He paid a price you could not pay because, not because you're a, a burden, 
Or not because you're a, a disappointment or you're a, a failure, but because he loves you. Right? The, the cost for your redemption was clear. The full wrath of God had to be satisfied. Nothing less would, would suffice. And Jesus willingly stepped forward to take it. Jesus knew the cost when he left the Father's side to take on flesh as a baby. Jesus knew the cost when he was calling his disciples to be his followers, including the one that would betray him. Jesus knew the cost when he was in the upper room eating that final meal with his disciples. Jesus knew the cost when he was in the garden praying to the Father, let this cup pass from me. Jesus knew the cost when he was arrested and betrayed and tried by men. Jesus knew the cost when he was forced to take up his cross. Jesus knew the cost when he was nailed to the cross and suffocated to death over the course of three hours under the full wrath of the Father. And his motivation was love. But Pastor P.J., wasn't it to satisfy the wrath of God? Yes. Wasn't it so God could be just and the justifier, the one who has faith in Jesus? Yes. Wasn't it to fulfill the law's demands? Yes. Wasn't it to conquer death? Yes. Wasn't it to crush the head of the enemy? Yes. Yes, yes, yes. It was for all of these reasons. But we have to take these reasons, which we know. Look, we're really good at the doctrine and theology about the, the atonement. We're really good about the, the getting the, the satisfaction of the wrath of God part of the gospel right. We're really good about that, right? But where we run the risk of is sterilizing that so that we miss the why behind it all. Why did Jesus do this? Why? Because of his love for us. Because God set his affection on you and me and loved you this much. It wasn't so that our systematic theologies would have a chapter on, systematic, on substitutionary atonement. That's not why this took place. This took place because God so loved the world. You included in that, that he gave his son so that you, if you put your trust and faith in him as your savior, will not perish but have eternal life. That's why Jesus did this. That's why he went willingly to the cross. That's why he suffered like he did and why he died like he did. And that's why the hymn writer said, the love of God is greater far than tongue or pen could ever tell. Goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. In another verse, he says this, Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk, plant, on earth a, a quill, a pen, and every man a scribe by trade? Look, to write the extent of the love of God above would drain that ocean of ink dry, and no scroll could contain it all, even if it were stretched from sky to sky. The immeasurable love of God poured out and realized at the cross. But like we sang, right? Jesus did not stay dead. And that's why this gospel has good news. That's why this is not just about the suffering servant who died, end of story. So you guys all need to, to buck up because you're not suffering like he did. That's not the message. The message is we follow our suffering servant because what happens next? 
secures a future for us that makes any suffering that we experience here worth it. Look at chapter 16. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices. By the way, that's Jesus' mom. Brought spices so that they might go and anoint him because that's what you would do with the body. You, you, they laid it in the tomb and it was the Sabbath so they couldn't, they couldn't go and, and do this because it would have been to, to break the Sabbath. And so they, they were gonna go back the next day to do this. And, and they're going and they've got these spices because the spices would have been a, a way to, to, to prevent against the, the body smelling, right? In the, the tomb. And so they were gonna go and anoint him with these spices. And it says on very early the first day of the week, which would have been Sunday, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb and they were saying to one another, hey, We've got these spices and stuff, but who's going to roll away the stone for us to get in there? Because this tomb would have either had this like bowl track where the disc would have been rolled down in front of it or just a massive rock rolled in front of the opening of the, the cave there. And so they're wondering, who's going to remove the, the stone for, from us, for us? But then it, it says in verse 4, and looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. Mark says, it was very large. How do they know that? How does Mark know that? Because who went after the, the ladies came back? Peter, Peter's telling Mark, yeah, dude, this was a massive rock. This is, this is really big, like CrossFit, nothing. No, they're not getting this thing out. It was a very large rock. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. Why are they alarmed? Because that's what people do when they see angels. This is an angelic being who's there in the, the tomb. And they're frightened by this. They're going, we, what, catch us up. Tell us what happened, because we don't know. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. Okay, you seek Jesus of Nazareth. Yes, we do. Where is he? Who was crucified? He has risen. Simplicity in Mark, right? Like that, that's a, some of what I love so much about Mark. Just the simplicity. He has risen, right? I, I, I just want to know, like at what point did they talk to Jesus and be like, okay, Jesus, how did that happen? What was that like? What did, was, what did that feel like? Did, what, like fill us in on this. When did, the, how, when, who, how, who rolled the stone away? When did this take place? Mark, he has risen because that's what the angel says. He's not here. Duh, duh. Like we see that. The body's gone. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. And then he says, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. Mark chapter 14, verse 28. Jesus said, I will go before you to Galilee after I'm resurrected. Go tell his disciples he will go before you to Galilee and you will see him just as he told you. Notice what he includes there. Go tell his disciples and Peter. Why is that mentioned there? Why do you think? Because of Peter's denials. Because this is a, a mercy of God to restore even Peter to say, look, yeah, Peter denied him, but he's not out. He's not out. Jesus has risen Oh man, this has been a long sermon. I apologize, but this is my last shot. Man, I'm covering like 16 chapters of Mark in five weeks, so just bear with me for a second. Yeah, I'm not even gonna get there, okay? Forget that. You can take an apologetics class at CBI next time to talk about alternative theories about the resurrection or just come talk to me and, and I'll help you with this. Here's a point. Point number three is this. Realize Jesus died, rose for you. Died for you, yes, but also realize that he rose for you, that he was resurrected for you. If you, let me just say this really quick, and then, and then I'm done on the, the apologetic side. See the, the brackets? Some of the earliest manuscripts do not include Mark 16, 9 through 20. Okay, that's an addition that, that took place later on. That, that wasn't there in the, the earliest manuscripts of Mark's gospel that we have. So 
that's why I'm not preaching that. It's not part of what Mark originally wrote, okay? Did Mark really end that abruptly? It's possible. Is it possible that there was an ending that Mark had that we lost? Maybe, but look, we have what God wants us to have in Mark. And that, that we can say is for sure up until Mark chapter 16, verse eight. And at that point, we don't know anything else. But here's the deal. You know enough. Why do you know enough? Who's the hero in the, the, the book of Mark? Jesus is, yes. And, and what's the most significant thing about Jesus is that he died and then what? That he rose, right? And so we know that now. And in Mark's, we've, we've got it, right? And so we've got Mark 16, 8. You're like, well, I want the Great Commission. Go to Matthew, okay? Matthew did a great job on that part. Mark, Mark's like, peace, I'm out. Like, here you go. He rose. Like, I, I'm, I'm in a hurry. But that's so significant. That's the most important thing, that he rose for you. It's not just that he died for you. Because if he died for you and didn't rise, guess what? We're in trouble. That's 1 Corinthians 15. And when Paul's there, he's going, hey, look, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we're, we're a bunch of idiots. Because we're here doing all this and, and abstaining from our fleshly lust and battling sin and, and everything else like that. And if he never rose from the dead, what are we doing? We're still in our sin. But in fact, what does Paul say? He did rise from the dead as the first fruits. That means he is the pledge that we will all one day join him in the resurrection. This is the good news. This is the greatest news. This is the best news of the gospel. That the, the payment of the cross was accepted by God. How do you know? Because death couldn't hold him. Why not? Because he was sinless. And so he's validated. And God says, yes, I've accepted the payment. And Jesus comes out of the tomb never to enter again. What does that mean for you here and now? I'm glad you asked. It means this, Ephesians 2, 4 through 7, because we enjoy some of the benefits of that even right now. Paul says this, but God being rich in mercy because of the great what? What's the word? The great love with which he loved us, right? Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. How many of y'all sitting next to Jesus right now? Okay, well then take your Bibles and throw them away because that's wrong because it says it's past tense. Why is it in the past tense? Because there's an already not yet. Because it's as good as done. Because if you're in Christ, you do have that place secured for you. Your identity is with Jesus at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is interceding for you so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Okay, that's great. What does that mean for me? Okay, I'm glad you asked again, even though you didn't. But 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Grab your Bibles, turn there. Man, is he going to preach 2 Corinthians all tonight too? Probably. But you know what? There's the door. No, don't go out the door. I promise I'm, I'm coming down. But this, like, how can you not preach excitedly about this? Dude, if, you, if this isn't lighting you up, then what are you doing? And maybe that's a good question tonight. Second Corinthians chapter four, what does all this do for me? Why does it matter that Jesus rose from the dead for me right now today? Remember, Jesus is what? The suffering servant of God. And we're following him. That means what? That, well, things are gonna get rough for us if they haven't already for you. But notice what Paul says here. I'm gonna let Paul preach, okay? But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God, not us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. 
persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. We are always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. Man, things are not going well is what Paul's saying here. We're suffering to the point of we're being given over to death because of Jesus. So that the life of Jesus, though, might be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus. Did you catch that? He who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So, Paul says, we don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our body of flesh is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For, Paul says, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. If Jesus has not risen, none of that's true. But because he did, all of it is. All of it is. How can I say light momentary affliction, Pastor PJ? You don't know what I've been enduring. You don't know how long I've been enduring it. You don't know my story. Listen, I don't need to. I, I, I love to, but I don't need to to tell you that this is true. That what you are walking through, in comparison, not to my story or anyone else's story in the room, but in comparison to what awaits you, because of the resurrection of Jesus, is light and momentary. And, and look, I, I get it. That's hard to believe sometimes. And all I can tell you is just to ask Jesus, ask God for the faith to believe that, right? Pray, God, help me to believe that. And there are gonna be times where that's difficult. I don't have time to get into Romans 8, but Romans 8 basically, look y'all, it, it essentially says the same thing. Paul wrote that too, okay? And you guys will get into that in your small groups and it's awesome. It's such a good passage. Don't miss that passage. But look, he, he rose for you, for me. Why? So that we can follow him as the ultimate suffering servant. And, and yet that's not the end of the story. That's not the end of the story. That, that we're just a bunch of masochists that are here, sadomasochists that are here because we just want to be around a bunch of people that are suffering and we want to suffer. The end. That's not Christianity. There's a great hope about Christianity that involves the future where we will be with Jesus. So like I mentioned at the beginning, all of the life of Jesus is significant because if all we did is parachute into just this one section, we're going, what? What's going on? But as we've seen Jesus burst on the scene teaching like no one else had and healing all of those people, and as we've seen him begin to separate himself as bringing this new kind of teaching that quickly began to rub the religious elite the wrong way, and then we've seen him outline what true discipleship looks like to, to follow him, right? To, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And we've seen him preparing his disciples. Hey, this is what's coming, but take heart because I, I will rise from the dead and meet you in Galilee. And now we've seen him willingly endure the cross, despise the shame and the suffering so that our sins could be forgiven and we could have hope beyond this life. That's the offer of the gospel. Look, if you're here tonight, y'all, and you don't know Jesus, I want to ask you, what is your hope? Why are you here why did you wake up this morning? This world is a horrible place. It's an awful place. 
And this is one of the most unpredictable times that we've ever lived in, in my 38 years. And it's getting more and more unpredictable every single day. So honestly, without Jesus, I don't know why you bother getting out of bed. Because anything else that you put your hope in is more unstable now than it ever has been before. And so I want to ask you, what's keeping you from trusting Jesus tonight? What's keeping you from putting your hope in the one who loved you so much that he willingly endured the cross, despised the shame, that he rose from the dead for you so that you can walk through this unpredictable world knowing that no matter what comes, you've got a world that's coming with Jesus that is unshakable. You've got an inheritance that Peter defines for us. He says it's undefiled, unfading, and is being kept in heaven for you who are being guarded by God's power through faith for that salvation ready to be revealed in the end. Look, let me invite you, come to Jesus tonight. Trust in Jesus tonight. You say, what does that look like? Well, the Bible describes it this way. The Bible says for us to come to Jesus, we repent. What does that mean to repent? It's the word that was used in the Roman armies to to do an about face. They were marching in one direction. Repentance means turn all the way around. I'm I'm doing an about face. You've lived your life to this point for yourself and your flesh and the things that you want. Whatever you were after, that's, that was your God. The call on your life tonight is to repent from that, to do an about face, to say, I'm done living for myself, and I'm now all about, and I want to live for Jesus. And then you put your faith in Jesus, that he did what we just read about, that he died on the cross and suffered the full wrath of God against your sins, and that he rose from the dead so that you too like we just read Paul talk about, you will be raised from the dead as well with him in eternity. Repent from your sins. Put your trust in Jesus as your Savior. Let me invite you to do that tonight if you haven't done it. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you so much for Christ. Thank you for the forgiveness that we have in him. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for this life that he lived that led to the cross, that allowed him to be that perfect substitute for us that in 2 Corinthians 5 says was, was this exchange that took place where he gave us his perfect and, and holy righteousness and we took from, or he took from us rather our sinfulness. God, we can never understand what took place on the cross and, and in some ways there's a a power in just the brevity and simplicity that Mark records these things. But God, we're so thankful for the cross. And the cross is enough to pay the penalty for our sins because the tomb is empty. Because he rose. And that means whatever we're going through right now, and there are people in this room I know who are suffering and going through pain that I can't imagine. And yet I can say with confidence, not coldly, but with confidence that when they step into your presence, that they will be able to say with the Apostle Paul that this, what they're enduring right now is light and momentary affliction compared to the eternal weight of glory that you have for them. Because of what? Because of the cross. Thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray these things. Amen.